Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I'd like to begin today's podcast by thanking Oliver R., who uh, sent in a generous donation to help offset some of my out-of-pocket expenses that are uh, associated with producing these podcasts. So, uh, hey, thanks a lot, Oliver. I sincerely appreciate your help. Now, uh, last week we heard the first part of this talk, and we ended with Dr. Leary talking about religion and saying, Thank God for Eve. So, uh, yesterday I previewed the rest of this talk, and now I can't wait to hear it along with you again. You know, uh, I had several chances to go to a Timothy Leary lecture back in the 80s, but I never did. And uh, now I really regret being so lazy, because uh, back in the day, he sure had a lot of charisma. The talk we're going to hear right now uh, was given at Cornell University on April 23, 1989. And uh, if you want to, you might want to do what I'm going to do right now, and that is to uh, pretend that I'm only 15 years old and I'm hearing all of these ideas for the first time. Of course, uh, (laughs) I hear almost everything as if I'm 15 because uh, I never really made it past that age on the inside, and I have a good reason for doing that, too. Uh, It's because I was always told that I had to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, so far, I still haven't been able to make that decision. But I suspect, uh, or at least I would like to think, that had I been exposed to some of Timothy Leary's ideas back then, that uh, my life uh, would have taken a completely different course. But uh, that was then, and this is now. And uh, hopefully, uh, his words of wisdom will uh, not only be of benefit to me right now, which they have been, but uh, also to you. Oh, and uh, I guess I should also let you know that about uh, 20 minutes into this talk, there's a brief, uh, just a second or two break where whoever made the recording must have uh, had to turn the cassette tape over. So there's uh, this uh, very short break, and then he'll take off on a new topic. Uh, So now, here is Dr. Timothy Leary. Homo sapiens sapiens, we are the species that are equipped with this... uh, enormous computing machinery, 100 billion neurons up there. Each neuron has the knowledge processing capacity of a big mainframe computer. And it was a woman, Eve, with the first person to get off her knees and, and stand on her feet. You know, there, try the fruit, the blinds that fall from her eyes. She said, hey, Adam, you got to try this. <laughs> and um, so the, fir- oh, the first human being that thought for herself was a woman. And thank God for Eve. Yeah. Now, see, what I've been doing, uh, I'm, I'm going to ramble, by the way. Uh, <laughs> why not? I mean, uh, but I'm, I'm always coming out to ramble around a little bit, and, you know, I'm a little, you know, what my brain's been through, I've, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, there, are, there are three uh, very dangerous side effects to psychedelic drugs. I'm talking about psychedelic drugs or chemicals or transmitters that open your mind. I'm not talking about cocaine crack. Uh, booze, the favorite drugs of the last 10 years, or the real favorite drug of the Reagan administration finally gave us a new drug, <laughs> steroids. 
And I'm talking about uh, psychedelic neurotransmitters, which open up like that. And there are, there are three very dangerous side effects, and we ought to bite the bullet and look at the grisly statistics here. The, the first uh, very dangerous side effect of psychedelic drugs are long-term memory gain. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the second is a short-term memory loss. And I forget the third. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to ramble around here, but I'm also going to come back to this basic issue uh, of uh, uh, trying to erode uh, the shackles of... Uh, that's why I'm quoting the Bible to you in these books, because to give you a little picture of how... Uh, what they're really saying. Remember... They don't know any better. I'm not mad at anybody. They, they were trapped. They were trapped by the language. The people that these Bible hugging, pounding preachers, they think, you know, they're not bad people. They just don't know any better. And uh, so it's our job to, you know, <laughs> help them know a little bit more. Um, now, the next, remember, the first definition of a human being is when you're a little baby and you're a sheep. And the second uh, definition of a human being is into feudalism, where you're down on your knees and you're a little serf, you're powerless. And then you got there's a middle class with some the liege vassals up, 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 you finally get to the king and God. So you're basically a serf or a slave in a feudal society. And basically that's the period we go through when we're, we're five and six and seven years old. You can't say to a seven-year-old, good, hey, get out there and think for yourself. Mm, got it. You know, uh, you're happy that, uh, during our childhood. We're happy that there's a mommy and a daddy and that there's some big, nice man up there in Washington, D.C. with a nice white face going around saying like this. We want to have someone up there in, the, in Moscow or the Vatican that doing the thinking for us because at five, six, seven, eight-year-old, we're not ready. And the same, see, we we're capitulating as individuals the history of our species. But there comes a time when you are old enough to take the next step forward as a species or as an individual. And as a species, that happened when Gutenberg came along and invented the inexpensive uh, portable home computer known as a printed book. Now, uh, when, when uh, Gutenberg invented the book, it was a great thrill to the Pope and the King. Nay, good for you, uh, Johann. Uh, of course, Gutenberg uh, never made a dime of it, by the way. You know that? The, the uh, rights were taken by some lawyer. And uh, Anyway, <laughs> there's anything. I'm not encouraging you to go to law school. <laughs> um, When Gutenberg invented the, the book, uh, the, the king and the pope said, hey, that's great. Now, the first thing they printed, and mass, printing is all about mass production. Instead of just one manuscript that it took the monks a year or two or three or five to do, now, you could print out uh, in a day uh, more than a monastery could do in a hundred years. That's great. We can have a, a Gutenberg uh, Bible in every little village church around Europe. That's fabulous. And the, 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 the home... Printed computer is good for word processing, too. The, the monks won't have to do all that stuff. And it's good for databases and filings. Yeah, you know, that's right. And it's great for spreadsheets. We can, get, we can tell all the people who, how much they owe us, you know, for their tithes and taxes and all that. The, the, the printing press is the greatest thing that ever happened to a feudal society for about 20 years. And then, obviously, in all these little villages and towns, uh, people suddenly began to uh, learn how to read and write. And there was manuals on how to read and write. The first books ever uh, published in German language was by Martin Luther. It was the Bible. But once Luther translated the Bible into German so that everyone could read the Bible, whack, the ballgame was over because everyone started writing their own books. The Renaissance, 
the uh, Industrial Society, the Assembly Line Society, uh, the, the rights of man and woman, democracy, all these things were made possible uh, by, by the book which made possible Assembly Line uh, Industrial Society. Now again, I'm not knocking Industrial Society. We're all uh, flowers and we're all, we've all gone through that stage. On the other hand, I want to point out to you, and you know it, the Industrial Society is over. I mean, there are hardly any, maybe more than, no more than 5% of them young Americans your age seriously want to grow up and get a metal hat and go off to the mills like your granddaddy did. And get it, you know, the, the industrial side is wonderful because it spares us the, the muscular labor of the serfs and all that. We don't have to plow through in the field. But the industrial society does not encourage you to think for yourself. Listen, you can't think. Matter of fact, in an industrial society, there's even more pressure against thinking for yourself because if you're on the assembly line, you know, you've got to put that bolt in. You can't think about what you a green bolt or a red bolt. <laughs> And uh, so you're trained. This industrial society gives you the illusion of choice. Oh, yeah, you can be a doctor, lawyer, beggar. Yeah, sure you can. Uh, maybe you can if you're lucky and if your parents uh, play the game well enough. There is that some sense of, of, of social mobility in industrial society. So what? So you end up a doctor instead of a bartender. You're still put in that... Um, in that pigeonhole. Now remember, in the tribal society, you're a little baby, and in the feudal society, you're down there on your knees, or if you're Islamic, you're down on your knees bumping your head five times a day to Mecca. Uh, or if you're a fundamentalist Jew, you're up there banging your head against the wall. Um, uh, in the industrial society, the definition of a good human being is what? A good human being is prompt, reliable, dependable, um, Effective, productive, good miles to the gallon, <laughs> not too expensive to operate, and of course, replaceable. There's your good human being in the industrial society. Now again, I think it's wonderful. We, ha we have to, as a society, we had to go through the industrial society to build the machines that would allow us to get beyond the industrial society. So yes, you had to have three or four hundred years in which, you know, when the, when the industrial society started, it was all big machines, big planes, big trains, big boats. Uh, um, were, but after two hundred years, it got down to the motors, became smaller and smaller, you get the automobile. That's hot shit. We all get our little, uh, little um, carriage, and we all get our, um, our uh, snowblower, and we all get our electric razor, and we all get our electric can opener, and we all get our electric garage opener. You know, that was great. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we think about the industrial society, boy, it really shackles you. Number one, you have to get up, and you have to work hard. Gee, you get the lawyer, I mean, you get the mortgage, you got the, all these payments, and all, these, um, all the things you got to do, and you got to run off to the, to the factory, whether it's uh, the... Um, General Motors factory, or a Cornell University <laughs> mind robot factory, <laughs> and you, you run in, you perform your beauty, and then you run home, you jump in your car and run home. Then, the terrible thing about the way the uh, industrial society has ended up, not only do you have to spend your whole life in this compartmentalization, climbing up the ladder, but then you're expected to consume. Oh, shit. I mean, it's hard work to consume. <laughs> in the old days, you just went down to the market and you bought something. Now, you have to get in your car and you have to drive to the mall. <laughs> and you have to get out and you have to do all these confusing things. You have to the whole... Why? Well, consuming is hard work. And you have to get the ads and pull out the coupons and you have to run around and just put it back in your car with the thing, get home, unpack it now and then. You have to, you know, kick the tire and get the batteries up like that. It's a, it's a full-time job to be a, a robot of you know, producing and consuming an industrial society. Society. 
Uh, now, the time has come for us as a species and for y'all as individuals to move into the post-industrial society. Now, just as I pointed out that every one of these earlier societies had their theological prophets and so forth, our father who art in heaven, and uh, the, um, the, the, by the way, the, the philosophers of the industrial age, there are a lot of them, but the great totem um, prophets, well, the two I name right now, I could go on, are, are Darwin and, uh, and Newton. When you think about Newton, Isaac Newton, my God, Isaac Newton, the greatest physicist of all time. He invented calculus, he invented the laws of motion. Hey, wait a minute. Did you say the laws of physics? What the fuck are you talking about, laws? <laughs> How typically British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have a nice little law and order universe <laughs> with a big engineer god up there. When you think about it, see, the, the, uh, the industrial philosophy is all about Newtonian mass and momentum, and power, and work, and energy. Oh, my God, I'm exhausted just to say those names. <laughs> and how typical that is of the machinery that had been done, so it all fits together. Then Darwin comes along, and when you think about Darwin, I, I, I'm very amused now, there's these great fights going on between the born-again Christian creationists who think that God made the world 404 years ago, just the way it is right now, and we're all Republicans except for the, <laughs> for the followers of the devil. <laughs> They're arguing against the, the uh, Darwinists who say, no, it's all a struggle of natural selection, the laws of, of the... Actually, it all comes down to the fact it's a perfect British uh, empire philosophy that uh, the biggest, strongest, meanest uh, male can run around sticking his penetration thing into more docile eggs and cloning himself. I mean, that's what, that's what Darwinism is all about. Uh, and how typical of a mass assembly society. <laughs> yeah, crank it out. <laughs> In the post-industrial society, mass and energy and numbers are really a drag. You've got to be lean and clean and mean. You've got to move fast because you're dealing with a, a different form of... Uh, you're not talking about energy anymore. You're talking about information and intelligence and knowledge. And, uh, and as you know, uh, the, um, my 15-year-old my son has a cheap and expensive uh, Amiga computer in his desk that has more knowledge processing capacity than the uh, CIA's IBM did 20 years ago. It's awesome. The way, just as the, the, end of the steam engine came down to the dozens of little engines we have around our house now, the, that's happening with the, um, with the information age. The, uh, the key to the information is, is miniaturization. Cramming more and more and more and more algorithms and more and more information and more and more into the smallest uh, uh, amount of volume. Now, I've been making fun of the industrial age, and again, with, with, great, uh, with great affection. I'm proud of Newton, I'm proud of Darwin. They were, when you, when you come to think of it, they, they were lovable. Uh, I see, I don't know if you read their biographies, Darwin and, uh, and uh, Newton. They remind me very much of uh, Dustin Hoffman in The Rain Man, you know? They were really artistic personalities. They were genius at calculating. <laughs> But they didn't have a clue about street smarts. <laughs> they couldn't go to TJ Tuesday and get through an hour of human communication. Um, <laughs> see, I'm deliberately uh, kind of 
going after some of these idols. We say, oh, we all have to worship Darwin. We all have to worship um, Newton. Just like in the Soviet Union. It's incredible what's happening there, you know. They're suddenly discovering that Stalin was a big butcher. Well, no shit, Sherlock. But yeah, I mean, uh, all these... And people don't like it. You know, a lot of people get very upset when you um, question their idols and you uh, jiggle around with these things. They and, and the more insecure they are and the more they know in their heart that these are hallucinations, Darwin and Stalin, the madder they get. So it's a tricky business. And um, I want to warn you, don't go running around here uh, attacking people's uh, idols unless you have a real sense of compassion and humor about it. And, and be very careful or you'll get into serious trouble. As poor Simon Rushdie found out. Or Salman Rushdie. Okay, now we come to the post-industrial age. Let me tell you a little bit about that. Just as these other ages had their prophets, there are three great prophets of the new age we're moving into. Uh, the first one, uh, I guess you know what I'm going to say, uh, is uh, Albert Einstein. Albert, and this is one thing about uh, nuclear physics, uh, quantum physics, when you get to really understand it, when you really personalize it, you really humanize it, it's just plain common sense. Uh, for example, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Basically, he's saying uh, he, uh, there can never be any absolute measures of space and time because if you're a star and I'm, I'm a planet here, you're moving, I'm moving, uh, so that um, there's no absolute location of you. Uh, wait. Oh, who's there? Oh, shit, we're in trouble. Ayatollah Khomeini. Oh, Jesus. Who's that with you? Oh, they got the Pope. Oh, God. Yeah. And, uh, and Jimmy Swigert? Oh, yeah. Well, come on in, boys. Uh, well, oh, yeah. here's the beef. The Ayatollah Khomeini and the Pope and Jimmy Swigert do not like this notion that there's no uh, absolute uh, measures of space and time. They, who do y'all think you are? Think about relativity and it's your measure of somebody else. There are absolutes. There are absolutes in the Bible, Quran, and Talmud. There are absolutes in the Ten Commandments. And we can't allow people going around um, making up their own relativistic notions because the whole thing will collapse into they'll all start ro ro raping and looting and voting Democrat, you know. <laughs> Basically, what Darwin was saying is common sense. You've got to put yourself in the other person's shoes. How do you do that? Well, you've got to keep feedback, you've got to listen. Boom, boom, boom. I, I see you this way, you tell me how you see me. We keep interchanging. This is what the uh, communication uh, rhythm and technique and tactic of the information age is. Quick feedback. Remember the problems that um, Chris told you about that I'm working on? They're called multilingual, multimedia, interpersonal communications uh, appliances. We've got to learn how to, to chart each other fast. Uh, and this was not possible when you're using the human uh, vocal cords or writing things down, chipping them in marble, or even printing them in books. Uh, it's very hard to get feedback. How can you feed back to someone who's written a book? It was impossible. But now uh, we're learning how to do this, and we are empowered to do it. Uh, remember, I suggested that the function, my function tonight, is to try to personalize and humanize and illustrate and popularize uh, these complex... Uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't use qu quantum physics as a, a guidepost. The first one is listen to the other person. Um, put yourself in their shoes. Feedback. Uh, that's what Glasnost is all about. That's what the 60s was all about. Openness in communication. Nobody hiding the information. And the second, by the way, Einstein got his ass in a ringer for that. Did you know that? 
Einstein was considered by the uh, orthodoxy in the, uh, the 20s and 30s as a wild-eyed, crazy, atheistic Jew from Germany coming over here telling people they could be relativistic because the moralists, uh, the orthodox fundamentalist religious people knew that once this idea of relativity gets going, it's one thing to apply it to stars, but if you apply it to human beings, the uh, old orthodoxies are in trouble. Now, the second of our great prophets of the New Age is even more uh, scary. So we'll, we'll say it's Werner Heisenberg. I'm going to give him the uh, credit for the principle. They call it of indeterminacy, but I would call it the determinacy that basically you think you're measuring something out there. You fire particles down a linear accelerator or you get in a safari and dressed up in khaki and you go to an African tribe and you think you're studying them. Well, believe me, the, uh, you're just studying the field that you set up. And if you ask the people in the tribe or if you ask the atoms that are being collided around in that accelerator, they'll tell you that, uh, that you have created this, uh, this field. Now, what that means is in tough, down-to-earth English language is that we all create our own realities. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> now that's heavy to say we create our own realities. Oh, give me a break, man. Get out of here. I mean, I'm having enough trouble getting up in the morning and dealing with, you know, Cornell University and the, the, uh, the inflation and the acid rain and the Alaska oil spill and the, the, the bad climate here. And, <laughs> and now y'all want me to get up every morning and start figuring everything out and they say, I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to create it. Someone else do it. Well, sorry, boys and girls, but uh, you can't dismiss it that easily. Uh, Jean-Paul Jean Sartre, the great French existentialist, laid it down. He said, um, you know, you can make up all the abstract uh, gods or leaders that you want and theories and so forth, but uh, uh, you're just whistling in the dark. The facts, the existential facts of the matter are that you're in the nose cone of your own time ship hurtling at the speed of light into a dark future and you don't have a clue or a navigational map. And if you're scared, well, uh, grow up. Because <laughs> uh, we're all in the same boat. See, so now at least we agree. We're all out there. We can look around. We can exchange, uh, navigate. Remember, Einstein told us fast navigational signals. Okay, well, you know, uh, but still I know. It's, I know. I'm asking too much of you. Poor college students, yeah. Your mothers and fathers probably listened to Bobby Darren. Yeah, you're... Came from deprived home life in the 50s. I know, shit. I don't want to be too hard on you. So, if you don't want to take responsibility for creating your own reality, come with me. I'll take you in a stroll down to the theological mall, okay? <laughs> and y'all can pick out the God you want. <laughs> Any boutique, get your God. Take it home. Use my credit card. Be my guest. The ACLU will pay for it. <laughs> Maybe you want to. We all want a nice mummy god that'll comfort us and so forth. Okay, what a, take it. Go ahead, take it home. Or maybe you want a big, strong, manly god that can figure everything out and then you want to think for yourself. Sure, no problem. Just get down on your knees and do it. There's no problem. Um, however, no matter how many gods you buy, and of course, see, the sillier religion is, that's the law, not a law, an algorithm. The sillier religion is, 
the more passionately and fanatically people will defend it, if you know what I mean. So y'all better be careful when you buy a god because it can get you in a lot of shit. Quantum quanta. They're tiny little particles they call quarks sometimes. I, it was James Joyce, by the way, that invented the word quark. I like that. Uh, and uh, the basic elements of the universe, uh, quarks, are units of information. Uh, and don't think that these quarks are uh, little billiard balls, you know. Uh, uh, because one thing we've learned as we probed into the mysteries of nature in terms of information, if you think of everything in terms of power, then you're impressed by a big exploding star and the dinosaur and, uh, and uh, the Soviet tanks in West Europe. Hey, that's, yeah. But once you start studying the rules and algorithms uh, of information, miniaturization, the smaller is always more intelligent and can process more information than the larger. Like your brain, your neurons, is much smaller than your body. But obviously there's more, a trillion times more information and intelligence in your brain than your body. Take the DNA code. The DNA code is even microscopic. You can hardly find it with a microscope in a, in a cell. And yet, the DNA code has the power to grow millions of clones like you, or grow your Amazon forest. You get looking down that microscope, but of course, the old business, Heisenberg told us, you know, uh, you only see what your language and your maps prepare you to see. You, know, you look at that microscope of, he of Heisenberg, and you're going to create your own reality down there. And the scissors are drop a red there, okay? I look at that red and I say, well, I'm a painter. That's a criminal. Oh, this guy here is a doctor. He says, no, that looks like a drop of blood to me. Yeah, right? Yeah. You got a microscope? Let's look at that microscope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely it's a blood, it's a blood cell. You got an electronic microscope? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a hemoglobin cluster. Uh-oh. Oh, here he comes again. Here's Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> Come on in, Jimmy. He wants to know what we're all looking at here. Uh, look through that microscope, Jimmy. Tell us what you see there. Jimmy looks at the microscope. My God, it looks like the, the flaming vagina of the whore of Babylon, and she's winking at me. It's the devil. <laughs> Point is, you know, you're putting your own maps on it. And we have put the maps of power and energy, all this stuff. E equals MC squared. Well, if I shocked you with the, making fun of the Lord's Prayer. E equals MC squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light. Get out of here, Al. <laughs> the formula is now rewritten. I, in information, I equals MC squared. Where I am information. Each one of you should be defined as a quark. What's a quark? A quark is the smallest unit of information in which is smarter than anything larger. A quark, quarks design atoms, atoms design molecules, DNA included, DNA molecules make bodies and brains and up the ladder. When you think about it, you know, that exploding star up there makes a lot of noise. Hey, that's really nice fireworks, but uh, not much information processing, as far as we know. That, you know so the point I'm making is that in the information society, small, be mean and lean and clean, move fast. Now, this was heavy stuff. It started about the turn of the century, around the year 1900. Einstein's paper was published in 1906. And when the 
quantum physicists began to, to write about this stuff, they were, nobody understood them. They were writing with, with um, chalk on the boards, like cavemen, Paleolithic uh, people with, with the chalk on the wall of the cave. And hardly anyone understood it. It didn't make any common sense. It's not intuitive, you know, that we may make up our own world. And uh, how can we do that? Um, and, uh, yeah, you can't, you see, from the standpoint of the information theory, and what I've been doing here tonight is, is the alchemist knew about it. It's called solvate coagulate. You got to dissolve the old structures. See, uh, a molecule, matter, is information frozen. And when you start dissolving this stuff here, you get it down, 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 you're going you're to get more free elements of individual information. So what I'm trying to do is I've been trying to dissolve. Now I can tell you my tactic tonight, to dissolve some of the heavy stone massive boulders you got in your minds about uh, that have been laid on us, carried throughout your childhood and your personal history. Uh, because uh, in the information society, it's uh, miniaturization. And it's scary, it's hard to understand. And that's where I come in. A performing philosopher tries to act it out, personalize it, humanize it, illustrate it. And the glorious history of the 20th century, when you come to look at it now, if you think about the function of the 20th century was to prepare us to live comfortably uh, and intelligently in a, in a quantum universe, hey, the modern artists, just about the turn of the century came along. What did they do? The expressionists, they tore reality around and the five heads on the beast, you know, make up your own little world. Uh, cubism, uh, Picasso, surrealism. Picasso, perfect example. Picasso, you know that wonderful painting of Picasso called The Persistence of Memory? Where his watches are like tortillas or pancakes. Perfect example of the subjectivity of space and time. So pretty soon when, when when the average American, you know, back there turned the century, they said, look at those crazy Europeans, what are they doing like that? You know, that's it. But within one generation, they were teaching modern art at the University of Kansas in Mississippi in 20, 30 years. Uh, the expressionist paintings were selling for millions of dollars. So, uh, see, they, they were the first ones to help us destroy. Not destroy, how to to dissolve, that's the word. We don't want to destroy it, we have to dissolve and loosen up. Quantum physics is all about loosening up your, 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 your tight structure. The, uh, the, the writing of the 20th century that I prize is uh, dissolve, disillusion writing. James Joyce did it. James Joyce took the English language, took all your romantic languages. He was not a writer, he was a word processor. You think about it, jumbling with puns and different um, illusions. Um, I would say most of uh, the real thrust of modern writing, postmodern writing, is quantum. It's, it's trying to dissolve. You make up your own grammar. Make up your own words. There's a, a new book out now called, um, called A Trip Master Monkey. About, uh, it's, it's called a fake book. Uh, don't take it so seriously. In the, in the industrial age, you have to take a book very seriously. Yeah, sure, but uh, write your own books and make up your own grammar. But to me, the, the great popularizers of quantum physics that got us wiggling, moving to the rhythm of the universe were a group of acoustic engineers and audio physicians who came along in the 20s and 30s. Uh, they came over from the Caribbean, they came to New Orleans, they came up the river to Chicago, and they got America dancing to a very powerful quantum psychological rhythm called J-A-Z-Z, -Z, jazz. When you think about jazz, What's jazz about? Jazz is about singularity, about creating your own rhythm, improvising, doing your own riffs, uh, innovating, 
hey, that, that's exactly what quantum physics is all about. Oh, uh, yeah, come on in, Pope. Oh, shit, the Pope's here again. The Pope says, it's coming right from Rome, that you cannot allow human being individuals to, to improvise and do that, because if they do that, we won't be in tune. You know that to have an orchestra, you've got to have a director with a stick up there. And uh, <laughs> you've got to have all the violins playing together, just the way it's written. You can't go off in the middle of Beethoven fucking Fifth Symphony. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Good morning. Well, yeah, so here's... Hey, there's Al Einstein on the piano over there. He's doing riffs. Listen to him. I've ne nobody's ever heard that before. Matter of fact, he'll never do it again. That's it's singular event horizon. And what's that over here? There's Max Planck on, on saxophone. And he, too, is doing something that's innovative, improvisational, riffs that he'll never do again, maybe. And strangely enough, they're in sync. They're not in tune. They're not all marching along like a marching band at, uh, at UCLA. But they're in, they're in tune. Just remember that feedback thing. They're listening to each other. They're like two pilots or two birds. Or, or maybe like dolphins. They're, they, they're picking up these vibrations. Here comes Brenda Heisenberg on, on the clarinet. And uh, you get four, five, six, seven, eight, ten people all improvising, all innovating, all being singular. Individualistic, and somehow it's great. It was a great lesson, and this is to me the lesson of, of uh, psychology and sociology in the future. Uh, the fact that you become an individual and think singular thoughts doesn't mean you can't, you know, be understood. You're not going to be understood the way they were in the old lockstep days, but can't, people can't respond. As a matter of fact, in the information age, all the values change. In the information age, bigger is no longer, stronger is no longer. In the information age, if you can't improvise and think for yourself and do new riffs and innovate, you know, what are you doing to me? You're just making me into some robot. You have to go along with your robothood. In other words, you can't really be a lover in the future unless you, you're an individual person and you grant the other person the individuality. Uh, there's a whole new uh, algorithms of human relations that uh, I, I respect your singularity of your mind and that brings out the best of us and you're pushing me to get farther out instead of holding me down to lockstep with the UCLA man in the old days. So, uh, well, that's jazz. What I'm going to do, I'm going to stop this in about five minutes. I got you about a third of the way through the 20th century. We started the cave, and I've got you up to about 1930, okay? I'm going to take about five more minutes, and then we'll take a five-minute break, and then if you want to have, uh, I don't like a question and answer period, but because uh, I have no answers. <laughs> but I'll come back, and we can goof around uh, in interactive conversations. If you want to, there, there's a microphone there, and we'll have one down here. Um, well, movies. Who would ever believe that a farmer America, back in the 20s and 30s, hard-bitten, practical farmer and his wife, would go to a village theater and look at a wall there with a screen and accept as real those flickering images? Well, they not only believed it, human beings go bananas over electronic signals. I mean, anytime you expose human beings to their eyeballs, suddenly are, their eyeballs are suddenly flooded with electronic information, they love it. I mean, the human brain basically is a quantum electronic uh, instrument. The human brain is fucking bored down there, you know, for 25,000 years while they're, oh, Jesus, and now they're, 
Now they're doing ABCs. Oh, God. Well, now they're doing a little pollution. That's good. At least, yeah, I mean, when are they going to catch on? When are they going to boot me up and activate me? Yeah? The brain's bored. The brain can operate, can process 100 million signals a second, and you think you can deal with ABCs? It's bored. Uh, and every, every tribe, you expose them to uh, video signals and uh, electronic signals, and they love it. The human brain wants to be stimulated and tickled and strobed by these signals. Which brings us, of course, to television. Now, television. Television. Here you have a situation where everybody in their home now has, just like an automobile in the garage, they have at least one television. Now, television is a quantum uh, linguistic appliance that floods the brain with uh, signals. And people love television. Matter of fact, the scary statistic is that the average American household, they watch TV 7.4 hours a day. Now, is that scary or spooky or what? Remember George Orwell, wrote that wonderful book, 1984. His, uh, his best nightmare was that Big Brother would have uh, cameras in each of our houses, and we'd be in the living room, there's Big Brother watching us, we'd go into the bathroom, my God, in the bedroom, Big Brother's watching you, remember? That ain't nothing. Norwell, in his worst nightmare, couldn't, back there in 1940, couldn't believe a, a, a scenario where uh, 200 million Americans come rushing home. The first thing they do is turn on the boob tube and sit like couch vegetables, attaching their octopus eyes like suckers getting up all that junk food. <laughs> but don't worry. See, they're built in foolproof mechanisms in DNA. DNA hasn't been around this planet for, what, four or five billion years without learning a few tricks. And uh, you're not going to surprise DNA. No matter how fucked up a human beings can be, <laughs> believe me, DNA knows how to deal with it. <laughs> uh, so uh, what obviously happens is, is uh, as soon as you give people that power, you know, they, they're going to want control over it. Michel Foucault said it, and I mentioned it before, and I'll say it again. Who controls the language controls the society. That's the way parents control children, the way the rich control the poor, the educated control the uneducated. Who controls the appliances of communication control society? They used to say in the industrial society, freedom of the press. Yeah, sure, John. Um, the press is free to him who owns the press. Ask Murdoch, huh? Time, Life magazine, big power has just merged with Warner Brothers, books and like that. It's kind of interesting, huh? Big, 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 more, more, more control. But it's a lost cause. Bigger is through. Why? Because in the last five years, it's unbelievable, the, the informational power that has appeared in the house of a 15-year-old kid in America. Uh, first of all, instead of just the three networks, ABC, NBC, and CIA, uh, <laughs> now we have you know, cable, and you have dish, and you have a subscription, and you have, um, you know, the, I know probably here, true here, I know it's true in LA, you get about 36 channels coming in, not to mention the fact that you can go down to a, uh, a video store and get, you got, you, you got at your fingertips um, more uh, informational power than MGM Film Library had 20 years ago, and then you got computers coming along. So the computers help you. A, remember I've defined computer 
as an interpersonal communication device. Never think of the word computer as that little box that's there to be, you know. We all hate computers. Computers are the things that make it, you line up in front of the bank and you wonder if your check's going to bounce. And the, the computer foul up, you know. And you go to the airline and you're wondering if the computer's going to give you a place on, you know. Well, that's all over now because uh, we've all learned how to. Who controls the screen? Controls society. If ABC, when Ronald Reagan and uh, the spin doctors of the Republican Party control the TV, which they do, they control the country. That's how Bush got elected. We know that. Who controls the screen controls the people. That's the downside. And the upside is, hey, no, shit. If that's true, then if I can get control of my screen, hey, I'm home free. And that's exactly what is happening. And that's, I've been working myself personally six years on this crusade. We're giving more and more power. We're developing software that will give power to the 14-year-old kid to control her screen. Now, let me give you one example of how it's going to happen. Within two or three years, this stuff is already in the market, but it's not cheap enough. Within two or three years, the 14-year-old kid in the ghetto or the barrio or the slum, and these, this is the future of our nation you're talking about, because the nation is never any greater than its... It's under, you know, least deprived. The 14-year-old kid in the ghetto, barrio slum or bored suburb, will have computing, inexpensive computing power, less, less money than two of those $25 textbooks that the kids don't read. To do this, we got a 14-year-old girl in the ghetto. And I feel hopeless and helpless. I have no power whatsoever. And what can I do? I want to. Uh, I want, saw a movie last night. It made me so pissed off. What can I do? What was the movie you saw? I saw Rambo. Yeah, pretty shitty, isn't it? Yeah, Rambo. It's a movie about Sly Stallone, Mr. Steroid himself, <laughs> climbing around in the jungles of Southeast Asia, sweating in that band overhead, and he's singing the Star Spangled Banner. And, he comes crashing through the foliage into this native clearing, and he pulls out a big, enormous gun, shoots down 200 colored people. Remember that one? <laughs> then he said, I did it all for you, Ronnie. Okay. Now, if I'm the 14-year-old kid in the ghetto, what can I do about that? It costs about $45 million to make a Rambo movie, not including the 10 you give Sly. So what can that kid do? Here's what that kid can do in two years. You go down to the video store, and for 99 cents, you rent Rambo, and you bring it home, and you put it on your VCR, and you watch it. Now, with the present, you can't redo the whole movie. You don't want to. You pick out, like, the minute of that movie that you want to change, see? and you digitize it. Maybe you'll take that scene I just gave you, bursting into the uh, native clearing, and you digitize about a minute of that. And then now you can do whatever you want with it. You, you know, these cheap paint programs. You can, you can put the, a mustache on, um, on sliced alone, you know. <laughs> Now, here's what we'll do. Look up National Geographic and we'll get a picture of a, a big, ugly, mean-looking gorilla, okay? <laughs> From the waist up. Pop that on top of uh, Sly. And then about that big gun. Well, what do we do about that gun? Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah. We'll look up a good housekeeping magazine. There's a wilted celery stuff. <laughs> no. Here's a National Geographic. There's a big elephant, uh, a sick-looking, limp-dangling penis. Okay. <laughs> Photograph it, digitize it, pop it on your computer, okay? <laughs> now I need the voice. The voice says, I want it for you this time, Ronnie, okay? Let's get a helium voice, all right? 
Let's get uh, Mickey Mouse. You know, feed it right up. Okay. All right, then. Pats that in. You've spent about $2 now. Uh, you run it. And there he is going through the jungle. And he's, he's good looking and he's sweating. Rocky. Suddenly he's there in the native clearing. And he's, he's a gorilla carrying a limp penis. He's like, we want it for you, Ronnie. But then, what you do is you take that tape and you put it back in the box. <laughs> and within three years, the most fun in America is going to be going to a, a tape store knowing, not knowing what you're going to get. Called uh, Power to the People. Now I'm going to take a five-minute break, and uh, if you want to hang around and uh, play uh, musical words with me, uh, I'll meet you here in about five or ten minutes. Thank you. This uh, is supposed to be the most interesting part of the program, and uh, I want to say right in the beginning that we don't want to get into a question and answer mode here. It's easy trap to fall into. Uh, you ask, there's certain questions about facts. I'll try to answer them. Some because I've been places uh, you haven't been. Uh, but basically, don't look to me for answers. I'm not here to give you any prepackaged, uh, uh, nicely wrapped up uh, answers. My job is to stimulate you and to throw you off balance. And my answer is always going to be, well, think for yourself. Although I'll try to, um, to address my ability, I'll try to... Uh, make it uh, more fun for you to think for yourself. By the way, you know, thinking for yourself, the brain is the ultimate pleasure organ, you know. <laughs> I didn't invent that, but, uh, and it's not my fault, Nancy, that uh, the brain is so popular um, because uh, it's been designed for four and a half billion years to make its use, um, you know, pleasurable. So my job is to try to stimulate you to, to use it. Now, there's a mic here and a mic there, so if anyone's got some smart-ass thing to say, why don't you come on up and... Uh, <laughs> do you still recommend stimulating our minds with acid? The question is, do I, stimu do I recommend stimulating our minds with acid? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I never have uh, uh, recommended uh, that anyone take a specific drug. Uh, <laughs> In this, yeah. Now, in the 60s, we did a great deal of a tremendous amount of research at Harvard University. As a matter of fact, there were probably 500 clinics and um, uh, centers around the world that were using LSD um, in the context where people knew what they were doing, and um, there was no problem, there were hardly any problems at all, except when the CIA was doing it, uh, as you probably know, and then people got pretty weird behind that. Uh, especially when they were not told what they were taking. But uh, I think we made it very clear that uh, the uh, turn on, tune in, drop out, by the way, was, uh, didn't mean rush off and go to the pharmacy and buy LSD for $2 and turn on, like that. Um, matter of fact, after the year 1966, 67, 68, it was folly and absolute semantic uh, nonsense to tell anyone to take LSD, even if I wanted to, because there wasn't any LSD around. I mean, no legal LSD. You didn't know what you were getting. And I would say that maybe seven or eight million people have taken LSD since 1966-67. How do you know what you were getting? You may have been, if you're lucky and you knew some of the great, great, dedicated San Francisco uh, alchemists like uh, Owsley, um, 
the bear, and uh, there, he was one of the many totally dedicated, uh, devoted, visionary chemists. You were, you were in good shape, but uh, if you're getting some stuff from some guy in a trench coat in a bar room in Austin, Texas, you know, who knows? Uh, although I must say that the, the politics and the economics of the psychedelic movement, you think about it, there were no millionaire Peruvian LSD barons, you know? And there was no uh, shooting yuck. Imagine that. Look at Woodstock. How about what's that? 400,000 people there, high school, you know, 18, they had to be old enough to drive. 400,000 people there for three days and nights, raining wall-to-wall mud, not much sanitation, hardly any food, wall-to-wall psychedelic drugs, and not one act of recorded violence. Amazing, in the Rambo steroid 80s, to think of um, 20 young Americans getting together and for a weekend and not raping and looting each other. Uh, can, you, can you imagine in, at, at Woodstock anyone sneaking off and shooting up heroin under a bush? <laughs> it's, it's totally unbelievable, isn't it? No one would do it. Or coming here and smoking crack get, get that uh, 30 second flash. Yeah, at Woodstock, I mean. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, uh, particularly nowadays, I don't want anything I've said tonight to imply that I'm urging you to rush off like lemmings and to take any brand drug or any drug at all. Number one, because uh, my job is to make you think for yourself. Number two, how do you know what you're getting? See, the terrible thing about the government's... I'll take off on this for a minute, okay? <laughs> the government's crim, when the government criminalizes an activity that human beings are going to do, particularly an activity inside their own body, then the government loses all control. Like uh, when they criminalized alcohol in the 20s, there was no more... Uh, 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 quality control, you didn't know what you were getting, and thousands of people died or became blind because they were drinking turpentine, God knows what shit people are putting in bottles and calling it scotch. The function of the government is simply to protect us, uh, not from ourselves, but protect us from uh, bad products, F Food and Drug Administration. Um, if, if, as soon as the government criminalizes, if they criminalize abortion, and they, they well do it with that Reagan-Bush court, Women are going to go on running their own. Women are not going to suddenly give up their control of their own bodies because of Ed Meese and uh, Jimmy Swaggart. But it means the government, there are no longer the, the, the securities of knowing there's a doctor and knowing that there are antiseptic surgical procedures. And the same thing is true with, the, with drugs. I mean, if I, we could cut the... See, number one, the illegal drugs are not the, the dangerous drugs. They say that about a thousand people die a year from cocaine. That's terrible. That's terrible, a thousand people die from cocaine. You'd cut that down to less than a hundred if you just had correct labeling of the package. Uh, <laughs> in a society of 250 million people, there are going to be a few nuts and bolts that are going to go out and overdose on peanut butter, but uh, um, <laughs> if you had accurate labeling on the package, they have cocaine, it would be going down. They should decriminalize uh, drugs and make them bureaucratic. Take the glamour out of it. Take the profit out of it. And they're kind of boring. You have to line up and, um, like getting an automobile license. Get your cocaine, you have to write ahead and you have to, you know, have to stand in line and fill up three forms and <laughs> get a notary and then you get it. <laughs> and on the package, it should say, accurate labeling, it should say, more than two tooths of this substance, which is pure Peruvian cocaine, will turn the normal person into a loudmouthed, obnoxious asshole. <laughs> Thank you.
Now, I don't know, it's probably your constitutional right to be a loudmouth asshole. I mean, uh, <laughs> look at barroom drunks and born-again Christians, but... Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, and by the way, we said... Nothing about turn on, tune, and drop it. Boys and girls, those are not carved in marble. We said turn on, tune, and drop it. We didn't mean turn on once, click. Tune in once, clunk. And drop out, clunk. <laughs> we do it every hour. You know, turn on, tune in, drop in, drop out, turn around, turn up, turn down, <laughs> tune in, tune out. <laughs> the, the motto of the, of the 80s is not tune in, turn on, drop out. It's a hang on. <laughs> Hang in and hang out. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> don't believe anything I'm saying here tonight, right? <laughs> Think for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was wondering um, how you have such faith in the individual to think for himself, particularly in light of uh, like the argument you made about existentialism and your belief that um, these people didn't know any better, but but we do, or or we can, and this this faith in the individual, um, where that comes from, why you believe why you believe the individual can think for themselves. The question is, why do I have such confidence in the individual thinking for themselves? Well, uh, believe me. I, uh, no question of it, if you encourage uh, a lot of people to start thinking for themselves, then they're going to come out with some crazy things, I grant you that. Um, <laughs> tell people to do your own thing, and likely do some pretty crazy things. Uh, on the other hand, it's the basis of all of the really true philosophic religions, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Gnostic Christianity, Sufi Islam, uh, Hasidic Judaism, I can name it, all the pagan religions, all of the folk religions of, of uh, world history have always tried to empower the individual. They say, divinity is fine. Emerson said it. Every one of these religions I named, uh, paganism, they'll say, the power is within you, the divinity is within you. So you've got to turn it on. You've got to activate it somehow. Now, we should take our lead from the uh, religions who've been doing this for, for thousands of years. I'm talking about uh, Hinduism with all these different kinds of, of rituals. And they use a lot of dope, too. Don't believe me. The Ganges was awash with hashish for several thousand years. And the Sufis, too. Uh, the, uh, the, the rules of the game, if you're going to activate someone to think for themselves... You got to do it in a context of a supportive group. So they said about Woodstock, 400,000 people, and so no one ever go off and shoot heroin. Or, or uh, the thing is, you got to think for yourself. I don't mean think lonely, solitary thoughts when you're out there. A genius, shit. I mean that's Charles Manson stuff. Um, think for yourself doesn't mean that you're not going to think with other people. Remember, I just made the point that if you think for yourself and become a true individual, you're going to go around and you want to turn on others and they want to turn you on. That's what quark's all about. Everyone is a quark. All quarks are waiting to be turned on. If, 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 then. That's the algorithm of, of, of quantum physics. So, uh, you study the, the uh, pagan religions and the pre... See, the, the monotheistic religions, uh, fundamentalist Islam, fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Judaism, and fundamentalist communism, these orthodox religions, that the state, God has the power, the church has the power. The Pope, the Pope right now, it's unbelievable. He's the smartest man of the 12th century. The Pope over there in Rome is right now doing everything he can to keep uh, American Catholics from thinking for themselves, you know. Uh, granted, that is not an easy illusion, but my number one answer to you is um, I trust 
an individual, no matter how crazy, fucked up an individual can be, he can't be as fucked up as the Catholic Church. <laughs> Where are you at? Millions of people all marching on to war, onward Christian soldiers, communism, line up for, for Marx and for the state. What, what, the worst thing a human being, single human being can do is maybe fuck up the neighborhood for a week or two. <laughs> but she, when you get them lockstep, all uh, one billion people of the Islamic faith following, that's what's scary. No matter what, you know that collectivity lowers intelligence. No matter how dumb the individual is, there's no dumb individual that could have caused World War II or, uh, or, the, uh, or Chernobyl. <laughs> it takes organized stupidity. That's what I'm scared of. <laughs> and uh, the second point I would say is uh, if you're going to follow this life career course of thinking for yourself, don't be a lonely individual. My God, you're going to need contact. Remember, I started saying Einstein. You're going to need feedback. And that's what the old pagan religions uh, teach us. Uh, the voodoo religions, you know, you, they chant and they drum. and You're supposed to uh, go in and think for yourself. You're supposed to find your own totem animal. You're going off, uh, but you got the group there. And you can bark like a dog. You can roll around on the ground. Your man can become a dance like a woman. That's all right, because you got the group there. Hey, go for it, baby. This is your moment to go within and find uh, in this universe of your own brain and your own uh, neurological... Uh, Infinities go around uh, as long as you've got the group there. That's that's uh, that's Woodstock. I want to tell you, so I'm on this uh, riff. There is an amazing, authentic American religion which is built upon these uh, principles, and it's almost invisible. It's amazing to me how this religion has existed right in the middle of the Nancy Reagan administration <laughs> without calling attention to itself. I'm talking about the largest. Uh, Religion, American religion dedicated to individual pursuit. I'm talking, of course, about the Grateful Deadheads. I mean, we underestimate the Deadheads because you know they don't run around, they don't uh, they don't bomb abortion clinics, and they don't try to don't try to convert anybody. But you know, think about it. <laughs> week after week, the Grateful Dead is going around with. They're not even bothering with any um, uh, studio uh, sound. There's none of the hype. You know, they're going around week after week, year after year, and 20, 30. They always sell out. Uh, and the, the, the Deadheads, it's it's it's, it's ongoing. Uh, based pre-Christian or pre-monotheistic religion. And you ask the Grateful Dead and they say, well, yeah, they say, well, there I feel I belong, that I'm, I'm uh, access to parts of me that I can't get in the run-of-the-mill um, robot industrial society. My only problem is now that the Grateful Dead, the, they're becoming a little too um, visible. There was a, a riot in uh, Pittsburgh, the Tupac, yes, all right. And then some, I, was, I was at some New York State University, I won't say where, a couple months ago, and there were students were driving back to the airport, and there was a VW van, and all these kids in the van said they were taking LSD. I said, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, how do you know what you're getting? You know, and then they said, well, we know what we're getting. I said, well, how do you know what you're getting? He said, we get it at Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> I'm not recommending that, but your chances of getting holy LSD, or whatever you want to say it, or not non-commercial LSD, is uh, better under those circumstances. But again... <laughs> Uh, I'm not recommending it. What role do you think colleges play in society? Say it again, huh? What role do you think colleges play in society? Who is it? Colleges. Colleges. Universities? Colleges. Oh. Well, 
colleges, universities are tax-supported, state-supported, or financed by wealthy individuals and trusts <laughs> to prepare you to find your niche, your slot, your cog in the great industrial machine. This is a factory. Um, the great thing about universities is they do give young people a chance to have the three or four years off, so you can do a little encouragement, think for yourself, and uh, my advice to you is that don't decide to major until after you graduate. <laughs> select, when you get 50 years old, select your major, all right? Uh, no, I don't want to say that. I'm just, don't believe anything I'm saying. I'm just trying to shake you up here, you know. Uh, I don't want to discourage any business administration majors here to <laughs> become hippies, not me. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about the universities, though, in the last few years, uh, in the 80s, uh, as I go around colleges, uh, the students, no question of it, the, the students are much more conservative. The students uh, in the 80s typically were materialistic, they were career-oriented, they wanted jobs, uh, they... Um, were not very concerned with social causes. Uh, they weren't like those kids in the streets of Moscow or South Korea or you saw on TV tonight in, in China. They, uh, the drug, geez, booze. I can't believe the, the boozing that goes on in colleges these days. You know, what's it, Tuesdays? BPJ Tuesdays? Holy Moses, that's really... <laughs> that's and uh, the music today certainly is not like the music. The music is a key. The music, listen to the lyrics, the music you see... I love Madonna and I love Prince and Michael Jackson and all that, but you know, it doesn't have the philosophic kick that uh, Lennon and Jimi Hendrix had. I mean, uh, call me old-fashioned, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we've been on many... Particularly, uh, you know, the, the professors have been really upset the last uh, 10 years because uh, for the first time in human history, the professors at the university have been more far out than the students. Because most of the professors, not all of them, most of them went through the 60s and had some concept of, um, of less, uh, you know, quantum psychology, all that loosening up. The professors have these uptight kids that just want to, uh, the, the only cause they're concerned with is uh, they're going to riot over more parking space in the student parking lot, right? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but some professors explained this to me just uh, a few months ago. It's all very obvious, demographics. Hey, uh, you notice uh, I ask any students when I go to college now, what, what music did your mom and dad listen to when they made love the first time? Yeah. Oh, Benny Goodman. Oh, yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Liberace. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bobby Darren. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Uh, um, the college kids, count on your fingers, the college kids in the last 10 years were brought up by parents who had their 60s and the 50s. And that's really <laughs> tough luck. <laughs> if you're over the age of 20, they, like, like chances are your parents lost their virginity, made their social context, their adult imprints happen during the administration of Eisenhower. We had a nice, fatherly general, just like Reagan, you know, who's saying everything, he's smiling all the time, and falling asleep, and he's all right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the Red Scare, remember? It, instead of uh, Ollie North and uh, all this DEA stuff, the, uh, the evil empire, of course, is Russia, but the 
the domestic problem that was corrupting cancerous youth or, or colleges was not drugs then, it was reds. God damn, there's reds everywhere. Reds under here, reds under the bed, reds in the English department, and the pinkos, and the covert communists, and dupes of the communists. Jesus, the universities back there in McCarthy was awash, not with drugs, but with, with, uh, with communism. And as I said, the music, you know what the music was? You know what, where kids in the 50s, if you wanted to revolt and rebel, you go to these, these uh, soda fountains, and you had a little jukebox, and hey, you'd get off on that, on that sort of thing. Uh. <laughs> so, on the other hand, starting about 1990, actually starting just about, if any of you who are under 20 or around 20, say, okay, if you're under 20, Ask your mom and dad, well, where were you 20 years ago today? Hey, mom and dad, were you at Woodstock? <laughs> Running around bare ass? <laughs> <laughs> hey, mom and dad, were you, uh, did you levitate the Pentagon with Abby Hoffman and that shit? <laughs> did, you, did you smoke grass and listen to Dylan? He's thinking, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters, or ain't going to work from Maggie's farm no more? <laughs> Uh, did you listen to John Lennon singing Give Peace a Chance and All You Need Is Love? I mean, see, they say, of course, every generation is different, but they say that the kids coming along that are now under the age of 20 are going to be very different from the button-down business administration students of the last 10 years. That's what the... <laughs> In addition to the plain demographics, you also have, and this is a wonderful wonderful intersection of, of uh, historical forces, this new computer software is coming along, that books, textbooks, the idea that you're going to use a textbook, a dead tree that's you know, shipped around, printed and trucked in from Boston, the, the new techniques are going to turn a classroom into an information center. There's no more lecturing, a professor lectures, you know, and the students all, they're taking notes, it's going to be interactive stuff, so that the new breed of under people who are born uh, after 1969, and the new technologies hopefully will uh, intersect with something that will raise the intelligence level of our country. Okay. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I have to admit that I am uh, amazed at how on target Leary was. He was uh, most definitely a man far ahead of his time. You know, at at first it may seem that uh, some of his predictions were wrong, but they weren't. Uh, It was just only his timing that was a little off. Can you imagine the impact that uh, he would be having on college campuses and students right now if he were still alive? And, and if the vibe on college campuses was like it was back in 1968. Yeah, it's just hard to believe that this talk was given uh, 20 years ago this month. Now, since I'm still trying to catch up after being out of town uh, off and on for the past few weeks, I'm going to keep my own remarks uh, mercifully short today. However, uh, one thing that I don't want to leave unsaid is that in the talk we just heard, uh, Dr. Leary mentioned the seriously evil MK Ultra program in which uh, the CIA dosed people with psychedelics without first obtaining their consent. And what I want to point out is that uh, this was a completely different program from the one that Dr. James Ketchum led for the Army at about the same time. 
Now, for over a year now, I've been meaning to interview Dr. Ketchum and kind of had him on hold all this time. I want to bring him into the salon for an episode. And uh, the only reason that it hasn't happened yet is that I've uh, been focusing most of my time on finishing my new book. But eventually I'll get that interview done so that you can hear the, the full story directly from a man who was there. And just one other observation I'd like to make about the talk we just heard is uh, has to do with the year in which it was given. As you know, uh, I grew up in the 1950s and graduated from college in 1964. So the background music from that part of my life was uh, quite different from what young people were listening to in 1989. And the music of the late 60s and early 70s uh, was really more hard-charging, I think, more in-your-face. For me, uh, the early 1980s brought U2's Boy and uh, albums like that, which uh, were still kind of in-your-face songs that challenged you to stand up and be counted. But by the end of the 1980s, uh, we were still trying to get over the disco craze, uh, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Uh, and the music uh, back then, at least to me, was a little less challenging than I remembered from my younger days. And so uh, I've been kind of wondering what the 1989 Cornell crowd might have done after Dr. Leary's talk had uh, their music been a little more provocative. Uh, something like the little tune that I'm going to play for you right now. Last week, I spent some time with a close friend of mine, Mick Mashper. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it uh, may be because at one time you were an Alice Cooper fan. Uh, Mick played on their uh, Billion Dollar Babies and Muscle of Love albums and uh, toured as part of the Alice Cooper group in 1973. And if you check out his uh, entry in Wikipedia, you'll find uh, a listing of many other albums and singles that Mick played on with uh, a number of other bands. And now uh, he has his own solo album out. It's uh, titled Keeping the Vibe Alive. And my muse is insisting that I play a cut from it right now. On a few occasions in the past, I've played some down-tempo music I like. But today you're going to hear the kind of hard-charging rock and roll that uh, has kept me going for years. So uh, tighten your seatbelt and uh, join me in a listen to McMashper's song, American Weirdo. And for now... This is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
Quote me. I'll be careful what I 